Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Hey, if you have your Bibles, will you go with me over to um, Luke chapter 10? On one occasion, an expert in the law, an expert in the law. This is the religious law, the, uh, the, the moral code, uh, the law of Moses. Uh, so this is, a, this is a theologian, right? One, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. How many know that's just is getting off to a bad start? You don't test Jesus. He stands up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's already asking the wrong question. He says, what must I do? See, you can't do anything. He's already asking the, the wrong question to Jesus. And interesting, he says, what must I do to inherit? See, inheritance is not something you earn, it's something you receive. So he's already asking the wrong question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replies. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And then he says this, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the Shema. This is the the oldest prayer that the Jewish people, they still pray today, early in the morning and at night, the Shema. So he quotes the Shema, summing up all of the law into these two things. And Jesus says to him, he goes, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Notice that Jesus, he says, do this and you will live. He doesn't say do this and you will will earn eternal life. So, so, so he says, do this and, and you're going to find life if you can do this. <clears throat> but he goes on and says this, but this guy, here's the real motive. This guy wanted to justify himself. He's asking this question, not because he really, not because he really wants Jesus to give him like the key to eternal life, but he's trying to justify something that is in his heart. He goes on and he says this. So he asks, so he asks Jesus, this one question is so, so heavy. He says, Jesus who is my neighbor? He's trying to make sure that him and Jesus are on the same page. He says, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus answers the man. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He had compassion on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds and he poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you. For any expense that you have, met, you have had. Which of these three, Jesus says, which of the, these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of Robert, uh, Robert, robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus says, go and do likewise. I felt like I should share this passage of scripture with you today. I'm going to pray in just a moment because of the day you just come out of. The I heart my city, what you guys do so well by serving your city, loving your neighbor as yourself. Because there's a, a missiological responsibility as a church for gospel messaging, which is simply this. It's the proclamation, us preaching the good news to all people. So there's a responsibility to preach the good news. But there is also a responsibility to personify the good news. And it is to personify the good news 
to all people, regardless of what they believe, regardless of how they behave, regardless of if they share the same skin color as us, regardless of any of those things, we have a missiological responsibility, a church responsibility to not only preach the gospel, but to personify it, to preach the good news, but to, to personify the good news. See, good news to a hungry person is not the Roman road and leading them in a sinner's prayer. The good news to a hungry person is food because sometimes they're so hungry they can't hear the gospel because all they hear is their stomach growling. So we have both. And what I've discovered in my few years of ministry, 20 years, is that a lot of times churches, many churches, many Christians have a loud message that they preach, but a silent message that they personify. And I believe that when a church gets this, this idea of we're, we, don't, we do not exist for ourselves, but we exist for the world outside of fear. When we get that, it, gives, it lends credibility to the message that we preach. It gives our words weight when people really feel the fact that we do love them and we care for them. And that we, we not only proclaim a loud message that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, but that we actually love our neighbors as ourselves. There's something powerful about it. So I want to talk to you about that for just a little bit. Here's the title of my message, The Other Side. The other side. Let me pray and then unpack this for a moment. Father, we love you so much. And uh, God, we just thank you for your word today. We thank you for your presence here today. We thank you for what you're doing in this church today and in the lives of every individual. And God, today we open up our hearts. We lean into what you want to say to us. Show us the magnitude of this loving our neighbor that you are calling us to. Show us the, the motivation by which we will accomplish that assignment. And God, give us the method. Show us that today. God, we thank you that there are no great preachers, only the great gospel of Jesus Christ. So we honor you today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Could you clap your hands for God's word? Um, have, you ever, have you ever been trapped in a conversation before? <laughs> that happens to me all the time on the airplane when I'm traveling. I have a method now. What I do is I actually wear a hoodie when I get on the plane now. And I, I put it first. I sit down before anyone gets in the seat. I, put, I sit down. I put my AirPods in, put my hoodie on, and I just snuggle up, like right next to the window. That's my that's my thing. Recently, I, I got into the plane on the plane. I'm about to do my routine, and this lady sits next to me, and she's like, "So what do you do?" I'm like, "Oh dear God." I told her I was like, "I'm a nurse in ER. I stayed up for three days, and I'm just tired." I'm kidding. I didn't do that. I, I thought about it. I really did. I thought about it. But I got trapped in this conversation. It ended up being a beautiful conversation. But uh, that happens to me all the time. I get trapped in these conversations. Um, and to, to be a pastor, you're supposed to be like, really kind to people and really loving to people. But sometimes, like, I'm human. Sometimes I act like you. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> like, you ever see those people at the grocery store and you see them and you're like, oh, don't, oh, God. And you're like hiding. You're like running in different aisles. You're hiding behind boxes of cereal. You don't want to get trapped. Because it's like, you know, talking McTalkerson, like that person that would just trap you. <clears throat> I found that a lot of times in Scripture, people, they would, they would try to trap Jesus. The, the religious people, they would try to tra trap Jesus and they would ask him questions. But the interesting thing about Jesus is that it, it, when you begin to count how many questions he was asked, he, he was asked a, roughly 100 plus, 130 plus questions in his ministry. He never really answered those questions. He actually only answered three of the questions that he was asked. He had a Socratic method of dealing with people that were trying to trap him. When they would ask him a question, he would turn around and ask them a question. And, and, and their trap, them trying to trap him would actually trap themselves. 
in the middle of the problem. I, I love that about Jesus. And in this particular story, this religious guy comes to try to trap Jesus. And he throws this question out there. How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus just flips the whole script on him. And he traps him in the middle of this, this thing that he's trying to, to get Jesus to, to, to kind of crumble underneath. And he asks him the question. Um, he begins to tell the story about the, the Good Samaritan here. And the guy asks him, who's my neighbor? And so I want to unpack this for just a moment because I think there's something so beautiful about what Jesus does. He deconstructs this guy's heart in a moment. And like a surgeon with his questions and with his storytelling, he just begins to slice this guy's heart open and reveals to him what's really in his heart. And here's what happens is that Jesus starts telling this story. And I love it because parable simply means to throw alongside. So it's a story thrown alongside a truth. Jesus was a parabolic teacher. And sometimes he would teach in parables to reveal truth. And sometimes the scriptures tell us it was to conceal truth. Because there's some people that followed his ministry. They just wanted his food, but they didn't want his truth. And so Jesus starts, he starts like throwing this parable out there to this guy. And he's trying to reveal to this guy, not just the truth, but to re reveal to this guy the condition of his heart, which really there, which is racial hate and racial pride. And he begins to tell this story and he says, you know, there's a guy that's coming down a road and he would have known this road from Jericho to, to, to Jerusalem. It's called the Bloody Pass. I've been down over in this area and people would not travel this road by themselves. Usually they were in a caravan. And he says that this guy is coming down the road, and we don't know what race this guy is, but the implications, most scholars believe the implications is that Jesus is depicting that it's a Jewish man that's traveling on this road. He's going down this road. Robbers come out. They beat him up. They strip him naked. They take all of his possessions. They leave him to die in this ditch in a desperate situation, dying, hopeless, no one to help him. If someone doesn't help him, he will die. He will die. This is the picture Jesus is painting. And this religious expert is leaning into every word that Jesus has. And Jesus says, okay, so here's how it goes. A priest, let's put it in our terms, a pastor shows up and he's walking down this road and he sees this desperate person in this situation on the other side. And it says that the, he says that the pastor, he goes on the exact opposite side of this man in his brokenness and he passes by. I mean, this is a moment where the expert, when he heard that a priest is coming, he probably would have thought like, oh, here comes a hero to save the day. Here's the savior in the story. And to his amazement, the guy passes by. I don't, we don't know. Was he on his way to church? How many know it's easier to go to church than actually be the church? We don't know what he was going to do, but he had some excuse that was more important than this man. Second guy, Jesus says, shows up as a Levite. This is like the A-team, right? This is like, we call ours the dream team. This is the volunteer at the church, the guy that, the lady that serves at the church. So, so, the, so the expert of the law would have been like, well, if the, the pastor probably had some very you know, spiritual, sacred responsibilities. And now this other guy, he's, he's got in his job description, he's, he's probably going to take care of this because he's a spiritual person. These are two church people that Jesus is describing. <clears throat> and and he, he says, but the Levite, Levite as well, he, he goes to the other side, creates distance between the man's brokenness, separates himself from the man's broken, and he just goes on his way. And the expert's probably just thinking like, that's strange. And then Jesus, he, this is the most provocative parable. Jesus says, says, now a Samaritan shows up. And the expert leans in and goes, oh, someone needs to call the cops because this is the villain of the story. It was the Samaritan that probably did this. See, the Jewish people, they didn't like the Samaritans. They were a mixed race. They were Jews that had uh, inter intermingled and got married with other races and were worshiping other gods. And so the Jewish people, they, did, they didn't like the Samaritans. You've probably heard people talk about that before. 
So in this moment, Jesus, he says, the Samaritan shows up, and the expert leans in, and he's like, what's going to happen now? He's probably going to go and just finish this guy off in the ditch. And Jesus says, but unlike the first two, the church people, the least likely savior in the story comes down from his, his, his saddle, and he rushes over to the aid of this broken person in the ditch. And he, he picks him up out of his brokenness. He clothes him, he bandages his wounds, and he loads him on his own donkey. And he rushes him to an inn. He brings him to the inn, and he pays for all the expenses. Talk about self-sacrificial love. He pays for all of his expenses, and then he tells him this. Listen, whatever debt is accrued here, whatever expense that you have, I'm going away. But I will return in any expense that you've paid to make sure that this person, they become healed and whole. Any expense, I'm going to reimburse you. I'm going to pay you back. What a picture of Jesus. The end is the church, right? Jesus says, church, if you will not, if you will not be afraid to, to, to have expenditures that may cost you deeply by bearing someone else's burdens, whatever expense you, you take for helping people and loving your city, whatever you give, you sell your business, you tithe on your business, whatever it is, you sacrifice, you sell a car to give to someone else, anything that you do in my name to serve people, to take care of the people that I've brought to your doorstep, he says, I am going away, but I will return and I will repay you. This is what Jesus says to his church. But I love this because this shows us the magnitude of the love that God calls us to. Because the issue here is that Jesus is showing this guy that you have, you have a problem in your heart. Your problem is, is, is not that you don't love me. Like you love God. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your problem is, is you have a limited love when it comes to your neighbors. See, Leviticus chapter 19, read it when you get a chance. It defines for the Jewish people who their neighbors were. It was their fellow Israelites. It was those that believed like them, those that had the same theology as themselves, those of the same race, the same color, the same, they dressed the same. It was, it was, it was their own. They didn't love the other people in this particular part of, of the narrative. And Jesus says, this is the issue I want to work into your heart because there is a gospel that makes you draw your circles a lot bigger than what they are. Let me ask you this question. Do you, do you, love, do you love the Democrats? <laughs> Do you love the Republicans? Do you love the people with a different socioeconomic status than you? Because gospel neighboring is when we love everyone, regardless if they believe what we believe, behave how we behave, vote how we vote. This is the scope of the love that he is calling us to. It's the magnitude of this. It's, it's, a, it's a radical redefining of our neighbor. And the reality is, is that a lot of times, you know what's hard for us to love our neighbor sometimes? Because we, we've created distance between us and them. We've distanced ourselves. It's easy, it's easy to, to distance yourself from a homeless person. And what happens when you do that is you begin to, with the gap, you begin to fill the gap with your own assumptions about why they are the way they are. Or you see the young lady that comes into church and she dresses a certain way, a little provocative, a little too provocative maybe for your liking. And it's easy to sit 10 rows away and to judge her because of the way she dresses. Because, and, you, and we can fill the gap with our assumptions and come to conclusions. And I think one of the best things that you and I can do is actually just leave this side 
and go to the other side and lean into their story. I wonder what his story is. I wonder what her story is. It's one of the best practices, I think, that you could have when you first feel any sense of judgment in your heart or prejudice in your heart towards anyone for whatever reason. One of the best things you can do first is just to say, Lord, I wonder what her story is. I wonder what his story is. Closing that distance because distance, watch, distance creates distortion. The, the, the farther you are from someone and their brokenness and their pain, it's easy to assume why they are. It's probably because they never got an education. It's probably because they came from a broken home. It's so easy. <laughs> Distance creates distortion. One of the best things that we can do is, is things like I love my city. Here's why. Because it's proximity that gives you perspective to the pain of the people that live in your neighborhood. It's so imperative that you and I, we, we, we don't just come to church and, and tithe and, and, and do our cute quiet times and live nice, moral, buttoned up lives. Like, that's important. Let's do that. Yes. But don't live our Christian lives where we just... We, we just hang out with our kind and we come together in a holy huddle, but yet that we go out into the places and the spaces where there are broken people and hurting people that are down in the ditch of life. Now, here's the thing you need to understand is that this guy, these, these guys, every, all three of them, the, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, all of them, they're going on a road that they always go on. This is a path that they always take. This is their road. And they come across someone on their road that is broken. See, here's what you need to understand is that there are people that are broken and hurting on your road. It's not just over in that neighborhood. It's in your neighborhood. It's at your workplace that there are people on your road. And if it's your road, it's your responsibility. We have a saying at our church. We say, if it's my city, it's my responsibility. We have people all over our region. Like it's so funny the way that San Francisco works. It's probably like this with Boston too. People that live in San Francisco, they wear it like a badge of honor. Like, I, I live in San Francisco. People that don't live in San Francisco, they're like an hour away, they still claim San Francisco like they live in San Francisco. They do that in Boston. You guys don't do that here, though. Y'all proud. This is your city. But you know those people, they live like two hours away from Boston, like, I'm from Boston. Like, no, you're not. You ain't from Boston. There's that little country town over there. You try, Stop trying to act cool. <clears throat> But listen, if it's your city, we say this at our church, if it's my city, it's my responsibility. It's funny, in San Francisco, people that claim, claim San Francisco as their city, they don't actually claim responsibility for the brokenness of the city. They own the beauty, but they disown the brokenness. And what I've discovered is that God has called his church to own both, to, to evoke her beauty, the city that God's called you to, to evoke the beauty of your city, but to bridge the gap between the brokenness and the beauty so that the broken can become beautiful. This is the redemptive work of God. This is what God does. This is the, the gospel at its best, working in and through our lives in a real practical way. You see, when we begin to meet, when we begin to meet physical needs in our city, here's what happens. When we meet physical needs, it opens spiritual doors. And we get into our cities and we get into our neighborhoods. We begin to love our neighbor as ourself. I'm telling you, it does something so 
so beautiful. If it's our city, it's our responsibility. But the reality is, is that you're always going to have an excuse, like these first two jokers. You're always going to have an excuse why, why you, you can't take the time to close the gap and to get into someone's story. There will always be an excuse not to, to go to one of the days like I love my city. There will always be an excuse not to serve the broken. There will always be an excuse not to give to the poor. There will always be an excuse not to share your faith. There will always be an excuse. There's always some kind of good legitimate excuse as well, right? Like, I'm, I, listen, I'm a pastor, but I'm going to be real with you, okay? Like, I struggle with this. I remember one time I was at a prayer meeting. I mean, praying, like real praying, like praying like the way that you people pray, okay? Like real prayer, real prayer. Not like the next service. They're not as saved as y'all. Y'all the real people, okay? But I'm at this prayer meeting, and we literally, we prayed for two hours. It was powerful. Presence of God is beautiful. About 1.30 in the morning after the prayer meeting, I was heading home. And on my way home, I, I kind of was still in the spiritual moment. Like it was that lingering thing, you know, whenever it's like really good. It's like you still in it. You like, mm. shout to the Lord. I mean, I was working it. So I'm in I'm, at this time. I'm, I was driving an old red Mitsubishi Eclipse. So I'm driving in this Mitsubishi. I'm singing a little hill song, darling, checking it. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like working it. And y'all don't even know who that is, but you look her up. She's old school, but she's still good. I'm, I'm listening to some Darlene Check Hill song. I'm praising God, worshiping, praying. And here's what I'm praying. God, send me to the nations. Send me all over the world. God, I'll do anything. My answer is yes. I'm just praying this audacious prayer. I'm young. I'm a young pastor. I'm like, God, I will go anywhere you send me. Send me across the seas, God. Use me. I want to be used by you. So it's almost 2 in the morning. I'm driving down the road, and I look to the right, and there's a, a, a couple, and they're on the side of the road. Their car's broken down. They're changing their tire. And I'm praying, God, use me. Send me across the seas, God. God, I want to be used by you. And I see them, and I'm like, Lord, send me to Africa. Send me to... And God, you know, God has a, a way of backhanding you. And he just like, whop, just smacked me. He said, really, Jason? You want me to send you across the seas and you can't even go across the street? He's like, really? I'm like, but God, I got I to gotta wake up at 6 a.m. and it's 2 a.m., Lord. I got to wake up and I got work tomorrow and it's, it's just not convenient right now. And I'm almost home. My house is around the corner and God's like, Jason. If I cannot entrust you with the broken people in your backyard, how am I going to entrust you with anybody around the world? So I just kind of just wheeled it around, went back over there. Funniest thing, I'm on my way back there, and I'm thinking, God's going to use me to lead these people to Christ, and I'm going to get to pray the sinner's prayer with them. I'm all spiritual, you know, everything. And I pull up, and I start talking to them, and they're Christians already. I'm like, this is kind of a waste of my time, man. Couldn't they have called AAA or something? Like, and people dying and going to hell out there. They need me, not you. <laughs> so dumb. But I was able to encourage them. And, and this girl, she, she was so sweet. She said, we were praying. We, 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 were in a, we just had a tough season. And we were praying, saying, God, will you just send somebody? So we need somebody to help us. And I'm like... I get back in my car and I'm like, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm so stupid. <laughs> Listen, there's always an excuse why we can't get in somebody's ditch. It's always going to be an excuse. But it's never a legitimate excuse. And the magnitude that he calls us to is to love all people. Every, it doesn't matter their race or their belief system or if they ever will come to your church. 
They may never come. A lot of them with no strings attached. It's a magnitude. But the motivation. So where do we get this motivation? See, secular moralism is simply this. The motivation for doing good with secular moralism is, is because I'm a good person, I should be good to all people, and I should help the poor, and I should serve people, and I should do philanthropy work. and what, You know, that's secular moralism. Be good. <clears throat> Religious moralism is I should, if this is my duty, and I should be good to people, and I should help people and serve people because this is my job, this is my responsibility. Both of them are actually, both of them are actually bad motivations because both of them produce guilt when you don't do it. And they're motivated by probably a little bit of, of pride. Like, when I do these things, I feel good about myself. And when I don't, I don't feel good about it. And so you become like a yo-yo. It's like some days you feel good because you help someone with their groceries. And some days you feel guilty because you passed them when they had a broken. You see what I'm saying? So it's not a good motivation. So what is the good motivation? I think what Jesus is trying to teach this guy in the story, this expert in the law, by, by implying that the man in the ditch is a Jewish man, and that the Samaritan is the unlikely savior in the story, I think Jesus is trying to show him this. That here's who's who in the story to the expert. You're the guy in the ditch. And there was some, there's someone that you've rejected. There's someone that you, you look at and you see as, as not worthy to, for, for you to love them or to be in relationship with them. You've rejected them. And they have every right to reject you back. And yet out of the graciousness of their heart, they sacrifice things in their own life. They sacrifice their very life to come. See, this guy, the, the good Samaritan could have been killed. What, what if the robbers come back? So th- this self-sacrificial love, he's showing this guy. There, there, there's, you, you've got to feel a person that has every right to reject you and yet they still love you and show you grace. When your heart has been warmed by, by a story like that, where someone that, that, that you deserve for them to hate you, to, to reject you, to punish you, to, but they show you love and grace, it's when you've been graced, it's only when you experience grace can you actually express it to other people. It's only the person that has been loved. It's when you get to that place. Well, where are you going to find something like that? It's the gospel. Listen, we're not to read the story and say the good Samaritan. Let's go be like the good Samaritan. Jesus is the true and better Samaritan. You know, in John, I think it's chapter eight, that the Jewish people of his day, they told Jesus he's demon possessed and he's a Samaritan. So they, they view Jesus as a Samaritan. <laughs> Jesus is the true and better Samaritan who comes down from heaven and he gets down into the ditch of, and the depravity of man into the sinfulness and the, the brokenness of man. And he, he gets down and gets dirty, rolls up his sleeves. He picks us up out of our brokenness. He puts us in a safe place, brings us to an end. And he says, listen, I'm going away, but I'm coming back for you. Listen, Jesus is the true and better Samaritan and we're the ones in the ditch. And when you understand the gospel, the gospel is the best motivation. You know why we serve the poor? Because we were once poor. You know why we serve those that that have no clothes, that are naked? Because we were once naked in our shame. You know why we serve those that are hungry? Because we were once hungry. It is the gospel that motivates our hearts. A guy asked me yesterday, I was speaking at this conference down in Plymouth. Guy asked me yesterday, he was like, what's the greatest motivation for, for morality? Fear, the fear of God or the love of God? I said, well, probably whichever one helps you be moral, I guess. I don't know. But I said, I would imagine this. Fear is probably 
we probably have a wrong definition of fear. Fear, we think of it like, oh, I'm afraid. I say fear is that reverence of the, it's this wonder and awe of how big God is, right? I was like, that's a good motivation. I was like, but I just think that love is the best motivation to live a life of obedience to God. And I was like, but watch this. It's not, the motivation is not your love for God as much as it is God's love for you. It's when you truly understand how unconditionally you've been loved, how you have, you have received unqualified kindness from God. There's been no prerequisites or preconditions for him to love you. He just says, I love you. When you experience the gospel like that, I'm telling you, it makes you want to love your neighbor as yourself. I think Jesus has given him, see, this guy wanted a rule. This guy said, who's my neighbor? Give me a moral manageable, something that I can manage. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a rule. I'm going to give you a dynamic. I'm going to give you something so dynamically different. And it's going to transform and change your life. The third thing is this. So I gave you my first was the magnitude of this love, the motivation of this love. And then the last was the method. Here's the method. You and I, as Christians, we have got to be committed to redefining who our neighbor is constantly because our broken hearts have a proclivity to limit our love to people that look like us, act like us, dress like us, or in the same social, uh, you know, economic bracket as us. We cannot be people like that. That is, not, that is not the kingdom. The kingdom says, I'm drawing my circle so big. Everybody's in. in there's a seat at my table for anyone. It doesn't matter their sexual dysphoria. It doesn't matter. There's a seat in this church. There's a seat at my table. My circle's big. I love all people. Part of the method is we have to constantly redefine. Secondly, we have to remember that the true and greater Samaritan is Jesus and that we were once in a ditch. When you remember that you were in a ditch and you were rescued, you were going to die and Jesus rescued you. That'll change. That will flood your heart with a grace for people. It's when we forget that we were once in a ditch. That's when we become callous to the brokenness of humanity. And the last thing as the band comes up is this. How do we, what is the method? I think it's this. I said it earlier. Is we have to go from our side to their side. I'm going to encourage you to do this. Every single one of you in this church, every single one of you, at least once, I admonish you, I implore you, I exhort you and all the other spiritual sounding things that say, I beg you. I beg you to go one day on an outreach, on an I love my city, go and get up next to someone's brokenness. Go and get up next to someone's pain, and I want you to do this. I want you to lean in and say, tell me your story. I want to know your story. And listen to them. Don't just feed the hungry. Sit down and have a meal with the hungry. Tell me your story. Don't just go and, and do an outreach to help kids in the foster care system. Man, start mentoring someone and learn their story. Get to know their story. When you get to know their story, it will give you a totally different perspective of their pain. And it will flood your heart with such a, a brokenness and a burden for them. There's something powerful about it. It's easy, it's easy to keep our distance and to stay in a place of judgment towards broken people. But when we close the gap, I'm telling you, it changes something in our heart. I'll finish with this, this last story. My, my father was a pastor and a church planner. He never dealt with the pain of his past, so he went off the rails when I was about 15. Just adultery, you know, cheated on my mom with numerous different women became physically and emotionally and verbally abusive. So at 15 years old, I began to hate my father, hated him, okay? 
<clears throat> for the next five years, I just ran from God, ran from church, ran from my family, uh, lived with my high school football coach for a season. And later on, I, I started, I was in and out of jail, started, started getting arrested for different things. At our church, we don't put our credentials on the wall for obvious reasons, because mine would be like felony, misdemeanor. <laughs> <coughs> And um, I was, at, I was at, uh, in front of a judge, and this judge said, I was in the middle of talking, and this judge said, son, he was like, you know what your problem is? And this is the first time I ever heard this phrase. He said, hurt people hurt people. He was like, the reason why you keep hurting people is there's something inside of you, and you need to deal with it, or eventually it's going to deal with you. And I'm not going to put you in jail today, he told me. He said, I'm not going to put you in jail today, which I should. He goes, instead, I'm giving you one year of anger management. Here's when you know you need anger management. I got so mad when he told me I needed anger management. <laughs> I was so mad. Like a year. So my mom worked with, with, my, with our attorney and, and got me linked up with this Christian counselor. And his name was Doug Carroll. And I remember about the third session of meeting with Doug, every day he would pound his hand on the, or the last day he pounded his hand on the desk after me for three days talking about how much I hated my dad. He, he stood up, he hit the desk, and he said a profanity to get my attention. I don't know if that's good practice, but hey, it worked. You know, it got my attention. <clears throat> he hit the desk. He was a big man, and he looked at me. He said, son, he goes, I've listened to you for three sessions for almost three hours straight just hurl these hateful words out about your dad. And he said, you know, the problem is this, is that you don't know your dad's story. It's easy to sit there in judgment because you don't know your father's story. And this probably breaks all confidentiality laws but he said, he said a, a week or two ago, your dad was on that couch. He's one of my clients. Your dad was on that couch in a fetal position because I made him write a, a letter of reconciliation to his deceased mother. He said the reason why I made him write a letter to her is because he was sexually broken because he grew up in a sexually broken home. He said your grandmother would come home with different men every, every few nights from a bar she'd go out to. And your dad was a very, he lived in a poor home. He slept in a cot at the end of his mother's bed. And as a young 12, 13-year-old, he would hear her stumble in with a man at night. And he would pretend like he was asleep because he was so ashamed. And he said the reason your dad was broken is because he never dealt with his brokenness. And the one that you resent, you'll eventually resemble I was 17 years old, and that day, that began the process of me feeling this sense of grace and love and pain for my dad, compassion for my dad. And over the next couple of years, that story, that messed with me, and I began to pray for my dad and eventually reconcile with my dad. Spent about five or six years in a reconciled relationship. God did beautiful, a beautiful work in our lives. My dad has since gone to be with Jesus. But I think back to the reason why I was so judgmental towards my dad is because of the distance. But when I got into his story, God began to give me perspective. I would encourage you today, lean into people's stories and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.